Good morning. You know, a couple of weeks ago, um, someone came up to me at TCF and they said, hey, why are we going through the book of 1 Corinthians? Are you mad at us? <laughs> and I was a little bit taken aback by the question. I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, the church at Corinth, it had all sorts of issues and they needed all sorts of correction. So are you saying, by choosing this book, are you saying that we have all sorts of issues and we need all sorts of correction? I wanted to say yes and turn away, <laughs> but I thought that might not help the situation at all. And it's actually not the reason. Heavens, no. I'm not mad at anything. Well, I mean, there are some things, um, but nothing to do with, with TCF. But I, I, I didn't choose the, the book because I looked out and I thought, oh my gosh, we have so many things to correct. First of all, that's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Um, and by the way, you probably shouldn't read too much into why a pastor chose a book in the first place. I chose a book because it was in the Bible. <laughs> and we try to work through all the, um, all the books of the Bible. And I realized we hadn't taught through 1 Corinthians in just about 20 years. And so I thought, you know, it's probably a good idea that we get back into 1 Corinthians and think through it. But I also knew that Paul was going to cover some issues that were going to be important for us to consider. I knew that Paul was going to address the issue of divisions within the church. And I thought, you know, that actually might be a good idea to think about because the last couple of years have been so divisive in nature. And the church, not our church per se, but the church in America has been so divided. And I thought that, and I knew it was an election year, which meant there's all sorts of potential for all sorts of new divisions to take place within the church. And I knew that what Paul was going to teach was he was going to teach our primary allegiances to Christ, and that transcends all our other allegiances. And the other reason is because Paul tells in the book of Corinthians over and over and over again that the real mark of true Christian maturity isn't simply theological acumen. As important as theological acumen is, that isn't the true mark of Christian maturity. The true mark of Christian maturity is love for one another. And you'll see that over and over and over again within the book of 1 Corinthians. The true mark of Christian maturity isn't precision in theology. Now listen, I'm not saying you shouldn't be precise in your theology. If you know me, you know that I love theology. I'm not saying to be sloppy in theology. I'm not saying that at all. But the true mark of being a mature Christian is your love for Christ and how that gets expressed relationally within the body of Christ, but also outside of the body of Christ to your coworkers and to your neighbors, to the neighbors you don't really like even, how it gets expressed there. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you can go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 Paul will start laying the groundwork for how the gospel frees us from our own self-interest. And we got to admit, we need to be freed of that. Because we're all about self-preservation, we're all about self-interest, and it actually frees us from, uh, from self-interest and frees us to love one another even at great cost to ourselves. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to be 
this morning. We're going to work all the way through the chapter. Now, um, you need to know this is our 16th, uh, 16th week in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're halfway through it. So we're actually making pretty good, pretty good, we're on a pretty good pace is what I guess I would say. And I don't know, you probably don't remember, but when I started the series about four months ago with an overview, I mentioned that the first half of the book, the very first half of the book, Paul is dealing with issues that he's heard about that's taking place in Corinth. After he planted the church, he spent a couple of years there, three years, moved on from Corinth, and he had received a report, probably from Apollos, that there were some things within the church at Corinth that had gotten a little bit sideways, got a little bit out of, out of balance. And so he pins them a letter. Uh, he pins them a first letter. He tells us about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So he writes them a letter which wasn't preserved. So we don't have it. It just wasn't preserved. The Lord didn't see that we needed it. So, but he wrote them a letter. He writes them this previous letter. But then he gets another letter. He gets a letter back, probably from Chloe's people, who uh, Chloe is probably a business person in the area. She had associates working. They went to the church. They saw some things that were taking place. And so they write a letter back asking Paul some questions concerning certain situations that the Corinthians, who remember, they were young believers, that the Corinthian Christians were confused about. So the first half of the book is Paul addressing issues that are taking place that he's heard about. They're quarreling over leaders. They're boasting in their own wisdom. They're boasting in their sexual immorality. And then the second half of the book is really uh, Paul begins to address questions that they put to him. And you're in chapter 8. Skip back to chapter 7 real quick. Look at the first verse in chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. That phrase, now concerning, that's repeated six times starting in chapter 7 and it runs through the end of the book. Meaning, all the way through the end of this book, really, the Corinthians have asked Paul a series of questions and now he's going to respond to it. And we already saw the question that they asked him in chapter 7. He responds to their question about marriage and singleness and sex within marriage and all those things. And now, in chapter 8, Paul's going to address the topic of eating food. Go ahead and you can go back to chapter 8. In chapter 8, he's going to address the topic of eating food that was sacrificed to idols. And at this moment, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't need to pay attention because I don't eat food that was sacrificed to idols, and I don't know anybody that sacrifices food to idols. You may be thinking that to yourself, and here's the deal, you'd be wrong about that. Because while food sacrificed to idols is the presenting issue, that is the presenting issue, there's a deeper issue at stake that Paul's going to get to. The presenting idol is food that's sacrificed to idols, but there's a deeper issue, and the deeper issue is this. Are you willing to limit your freedoms and rights for the sake of another believer? That's the deeper issue. Are you willing, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, to limit your freedom, your freedoms, and your rights for the sake of another believer? Am I free enough in Christ to restrict my freedom for the sake of another, uh, another brother or sister in the Lord? 
That's a huge question. Well, why was that the question? Here's the reason why. All around the Mediterranean world. Am I going too fast? Are you guys still tracking with me? Okay. All around the Mediterranean world, the Greeks and the Romans, they were polytheistic, meaning they worshipped multiple gods, right? They worshipped all sorts of gods. Um, they had a god for every circumstance and every occasion and every situation that they thought had significance. There was the god of war. There was the god of fertility, human fertility. There was the god of um, crop fertility. There was the, the god of hunt. There was the god of marriage. There was the god of sex. There was, a, there was a god for every need in every circumstances, in any activity of life that they thought had consequence. And remember, in Corinth, what was the, what was, uh, the temple in Corinth? Anybody remember? It was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, lust, and sex. That was, that was the temple. And to all of these gods, if you were saying, I would like my spouse to be fertile, you would go and make a sacrifice to that god. If you were saying, I, I want um, our, our team to go win this battle, not our team, but our, our tribe, our village, to win this battle, you would go and make a sacrifice at the god of war. If you were saying, I really need my crops to come in because I need a bumper year and I need to pay, pay back some loans, you would go to the crop god. All of these gods you would go to. And in Corinth, one of the main ones was the, was the goddess Aphrodite. Again, the goddess of love, lust, and beauty. And all again, all of these gods you sacrifice to. And usually the meat that was divided. Now, I know this is a lot of background, but it's going to make sense here in a minute. The meat that was sacrificed was usually divided into three parts. One part was burned up on the altar as the sacrifice, the proper, the proper sacrifice itself. The second part of the meat was given to the priests for payment of their, their work. By the way, if you want to give me filet mignons, I will not object. Um, the second part of the meat was given to the priest and if for, for payment of, of the offering. And then the third part of it was kept by the offerer themselves. Now, the priests, because so many people were making sacrifices, the priests couldn't possibly eat all of the meat that was given to them. And so what they did is they sold the meat in the marketplace. And really, attached to all of the temples, the majority of the temples, there was kind of a little butcher shop, a butcher shop and a banquet hall, where again, they sold the meat that was offered to an idol, to a false god. This meat that was offered to a false god, they would sell it there. And it was almost impossible if you were a believer who had any personal contact with a Gentile to avoid the question of, can I eat this meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? Most social occasions, including weddings and many kind of cultural festivities, town festivities, they were held in the temples. And the meat that was offered there was offered to an idol. If a relative or a long-term friend was given a banquet, a Christian had to decide. They either had to make excuses for not attending, which you couldn't do indefinitely, right? Because they're, they're, they're just towns. You had to either keep making excuses or he had to eat food that he knew was offered to an idol, had been, had been a part of an idol offering. And some of the Corinthian Christians who had just converted out of polytheism, 
where these gods were very much a part of their life. And they really thought they were offering it to another god who was a rival god to the one true god. They had just been converted out of that, out of that way of life, out of that way of thinking. They came into a, to a relationship with Christ, and now they have to make this decision. And a great many of them, the, the Corinthian Christians, they refused to eat the meat because it associated them with pagan practices that they did before they converted, and they didn't want anything to do with their former way of life. And by the way, the first of the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second says, you shall not bow down or worship an idol. And so they're looking at this situation, these Christians in Corinth, these young ones, they're looking at this situation and saying, we can't participate at all because we want to honor God. He's our true Lord. And another group within the church, probably some older Christians, they're looking at these younger Christians and they're saying, idols aren't real. Therefore, you dummies, you can participate. And more than participate, you can actually be a witness amongst the, um, uh, you can actually be a witness to the Lord amongst the Gentiles because of it. Now, you would think, if you've read Romans chapter 14, and if you know the book of Galatians, you would think that Paul would agree with the second group. The group that says, yeah, of course you should, you can go ahead and eat and you can actually be a witness to it. You would think that Paul would agree with that, but he doesn't. He doesn't agree with that. He agrees with it in theory, but not necessarily in practice. And what he does in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is he gets to the deeper question instead. He gets to the deeper issues and he tells the Corinthians these two things. And this will form the outline of the message. First, he'll say in verses 1 through 6 that your character should be marked by real love and humility rather than simply knowledge. As a Christian, your character, if you're really walking in the way of Christ, it should be marked by real love and humility rather than simply knowledge, even if the knowledge is really good and true knowledge. That knowledge should actually transform your character so that you actually love people really, really well and you're really, really humble. Hmm. Let me say it like this. Uh, the American church today is not known for its love. I will just say that. It should be. It should be marked by it, but it's not. It's marked a lot more by its theological acumen, but that theological acumen, that head knowledge, hasn't been transferred all the way down to the heart, and it causes all sorts of rifts within the community at large, within the culture at large. Um, so that's the first thing he's going to say, verses 1 through 6, that your character should be marked by real love and humility rather than simply knowledge. And then in verses 7 through 13, he'll say, your chief concern should be the spiritual formation of another rather than your liberty. Your chief concern should be the spiritual formation of a brother and sister in Christ rather than your liberty. And that's in verses 7 through 13. So let's get into the text. We'll see how he says it. First, your character should be marked by real love and humility rather than simply knowledge. Verse 1. Now, concerning, there's that phrase, now concerning food offered to idols, 
we know that all of us possess knowledge. You see that phrase, all of us possess knowledge? If, the, if you're in the uh, ESV, which is what I'm teaching out of, the English Standard Version, or if you're in the NIV or the, EL, the uh, NLT, that should be in quotation marks. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. So remember, that's one of the, the um, Corinthian quotes. This is one of, the, this, one of their, their uh, quotes that they're making. Paul's, Paul's quoting something that they had said. So there's a group within Corinth who are, we would say they're libertines, who would say that the idols aren't really real. We'll see this in a second. The idols aren't really real. Um, we know that they're just man-made. They don't actually represent any true reality. And they think because they know this, that they're really, really spiritually mature. And they've actually become a little bit arrogant about how spiritually mature they are. You ever notice somebody who has become a little bit arrogant because they got a little bit of theological training? It happens all the time. If you go to seminary, it happens the very first year of seminary. You walk around like you think you know everything. And then you get into Greek and Hebrew and you realize, oh, actually, I don't know anything. And that's actually the process. The, the process of knowledge is the, the state of moving from ignorant consciousness to well-known consciousness of your ignorance. That's actually the process of, of acquiring knowledge. And so he says, now concerning food, we know, you guys say that we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Ought's such a great word. But he does not know as he ought to know. Paul says this little bit of knowledge that you have, it's actually puffed you up. And it's the imagery of hot air <laughs> going into a balloon and making it bigger and bigger and bigger. And he says, you think you know, but you don't actually have true knowledge because true knowledge won't make you arrogant, but humble. True knowledge will actually make you humble because true knowledge will make you humble about yourself and it'll make you humble about how much you don't actually know. Is that not true? You go through life a little bit and when you're in your teens, let's say, you thought your parents were what? Super intelligent? Is that what you thought of your parents when you were 15? Or, my daughter's 15. I know, I know how little she thinks of me. When she pulls out her homework, math homework particularly, she says, oh, I, you can't help me with this. I have to go to mom. Because when you're young, you think you know everything. And you get a little bit older, you realize, oh, I don't know anything. By the time you're 30, in relation to your parents, you realize they knew everything and you knew nothing. Is that not true? That's exactly the situation. So true knowledge will actually make you humble about yourself and humble about how little you actually know. And Paul says, more important than knowledge, more important than knowledge is love. Now, is Paul saying that we shouldn't seek to acquire knowledge and grow? No, of course not. Because to the church at Rome, he says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. To the church at uh, Colossae, Paul prays that we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And in several of his other letters, he says he didn't want them to be ignorant about certain matters. So it wasn't that like Paul was downplaying the acquiring of knowledge because we know Paul himself was a theologian's 
theologian. So we know he wasn't downplaying knowledge. What he's saying, though, and you got to get it, is true knowledge will be exhibited by love when you use that knowledge, the knowledge that you have, it'll be exhibited by love when you use that knowledge wisely. Not to prop yourself up. Not to separate yourself from everybody else and say, look how smart I am. Look how good I am. The Lord's really glad to have me on his team. It's not that at all. True knowledge will be used to build up other brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's how it'll be used. And a truly mature Christian is one who's able to think and act in two ways. He's able to think and act in two ways, conceptually and relationally. He or she will have the ability to understand biblical truths, to think well, but then also the ability to relate them to people, first to himself or herself, and then to others. So he or she will have knowledge plus love. Because love, now catch it, love is the medium through which truth is conveyed. Love has to be the medium through which truth is communicated. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, as truth is spoken in love, truth spoken in love, what does it do? It enables God's people, Christ's people, to grow up in their faith in him. Now, let me say it like this. And you've, you've had this experience. Truth without love is abrasive. Is it not? Sure, it gives you knowledge, and it may even be good knowledge, but it's given to you in such a way that you recoil from it, and you're not really able to hear it. We've all had that. Somebody has given us real truth, but in such a way that it's abrasive. And because it's abrasive, we recoil from it, and we're not really able to hear it. A believer who's really mature will seek in every way possible to convey truth in a loving way. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be strong, you can't have strong convictions. It doesn't mean you can't have um, bold, bold words. But what it means is your motivation will always be to, to help your brother and sister in the Lord grow. Does that make sense? So Paul says, verse 3, he goes on, he says, but if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Paul says the most important thing about a Christian's life is their, is their love for God. And the most important thing uh, and the most important thing is not what they know per se, but it's who they're known by. That's actually the most important thing. And this too should produce humility. This idea of being known by, that's a covenant, covenant idea, covenant relationship idea. And the only reason, why should it produce humility? Because the only reason we're in covenant with God at all is because of his electing purposes. And that excludes all boasting on the part of humanity. Uh, I won't make you turn there, but remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. I'll read it to you. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that human beings might not boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you're in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, look at, what, look at what all that means. The knowledge we have, whatever knowledge we have, and the relationship we have in Christ, all of that, rather than producing arrogance in us, should produce genuine humility, deep humility and lasting love. That's what it should produce. And now, in verses 4 through 6, what Paul's going to do, he's going to pick up where he left off, and he's going to make this gigantic theological statement. Look at what he says. Therefore, as to the eating of food that's offered to idols, let's come back around to this thought, he says, we know that an idol, now remember the, note the quotation marks, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Again, notice those quotation marks. This is another one of the Corinthian quotes. And what it is, is it's the content of their knowledge. And they're right about this. And they probably got it from Paul when Paul was there teaching. And if not from Paul, probably Apollos. And note that if you know the scriptures well enough to, to know it, you should note that there's a hint of the Shema here out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a very monotheistic statement that they're making here. Because remember, everything else around them is polytheism. And they're saying, no, no, no. The Corinthians are saying, no, we believe in the monotheistic God. And then Paul responds to their statements, verse 5. For although there may be, um, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Now notice, Paul's not saying in the idols, he's not saying there's not evil forces at work behind the idols. He'll say that in... Um, Chapter 10, he'll say behind the man-made idols are spiritual beings, demons is what he will say, who are seeking to rival God. And so that any sacrifice that's being made to him is actually an offering to a demon. But what Paul says here, over and over against the many false gods and the many false lords, stands one true God. And Paul says, for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Again, that is a huge theological statement. Jesus, the Lord, is the agent of creation, and he's the means by which you as a believer, you exist as a new creation. Remember, uh, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone's in Christ, He's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. He says, Christ is the reason why you exist as a new creation. And our allegiance to the one God and to the one Lord, that puts uh, the, our allegiance to him 
the one who put our needs and our interests above his own, once, what that does, once that, that moves from head knowledge to heart knowledge, what that does is it will actually enable you and enable me to love our brothers and sisters in the Lord in the ways in which they need in the moment. And that's a huge gift to anybody who's a Christian. If you, a, a huge gift to a young Christian is an older Christian who is able to recognize where they're at in the Lord and is able to come alongside of them and give them support to help them grow in the maturity. And so what Paul says in verses 1 through 6 is your character should be marked by real love and real humility and real humility, rather than simply knowledge. And now in verses 7 through 13, he's going to say this, your chief concern should be the spiritual formation of another Christian rather than your own personal liberty. Your chief concern should be the spiritual formation of another Christian rather than your own personal liberty. Look at how he says it. Verse 7, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as though it's really offered to an idol. And their consciences, being weak, or being super sensitive might be another way to translate that, and their consciences, being weak, is defiled. So Paul says, while we know that an idol is nothing in the world, Younger believers, they don't have a solid enough, they're not solid enough in their faith to stand. They're not solid enough in their faith to stand sure. Young, and you guys know, and many of you are older Christians, you know young Christians are not solid and sure in their faith yet. They're kind of like wet cement. You ever pour wet cement on a project? It's very, very pliable, and that's always the reason why you write your names in it, is it not? So that 30 years later, someone can come along and say, that guy did a lousy job. That's why I always recommend you write somebody else's name. Um, but what do you do when you're pouring cement? You're pouring concrete. You have forms around it, don't you? Yeah, you do. Why? So you have the forms around it until it becomes stable and sure, standing, sure enough that it can stand on its own. And then you can pull the forms. And that's a lot like young believers. Through no fault of their own, through no fault of their own, but through the world's influence, they're not, when they come to Christ, they're not stable and sure yet in the faith. And again, not, not through anything of their own. They're just not, they've come out of one culture into a completely different culture. And because of it, they have all sorts of questions. And they have past associations with things of this world, just like you did. You had past associations with things of this world that when you became a Christian, those things tripped you up in your discipleship. Is that not true? I remember one time I went to the Shady Cove Market and um, there was a guy pack buying a gigantic pack of alcohol. And I, I thought at the time I was never going to drink alcohol in my life and I thought it was a sin. The guy looked, it was not Pastor Rick, but the guy looked just like Pastor Rick. And I thought it was Rick when he was buying it until he got out. He, he, I, I, here's how I identified it wasn't Rick. He was wearing a Raiders jersey, and I knew Rick wasn't dumb enough to wear a Raiders jersey. But at the, time, at the moment, I thought it was Rick, and I was stumbled over it. I seriously was stumbled. I was 18 years old, and I thought to myself, oh my gosh. Does this mean an a Christian can have alcohol? What does this mean? And it, it sent me for a loop for about a day. Um, 
And, until I figured out that it actually wasn't Rick. I called him later. I said, was that you at the store? And he said, no, it wasn't me. Um, now, here's the deal. Through past associations, a lot of things can trip us up in our discipleship to the Lord. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, while we, while we may have freedom, and while we may know an idol isn't really thing, in, in, anything at all, the young believers in Corinth don't know that. They're struggling over this. And therefore, your chief concern should be their spiritual formation rather than your liberty. Do you have a liberty to go eat the meat? Sure you do. Paul will say it all over the place in, in Galatians and in Romans. He says, sure you do. He says, but if it's going to trip up another younger person, another younger believer, then you don't. Look at the second part of verse 7. He says, um, but some, through former association with idols, they eat the food and they're thinking to themselves, it's really being offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He says some young Christians are still so accustomed to the idols that the food that they eat, they think it's actually being sacrificed to an idol. And by doing so, their consciences are, their, their consciences, because they came out of that pastor super, uh, association, they're super sensitive. They're super sensitive to these matters. And in the process of them eating the meat or being tempted to eat the meat, it's actually defiling them in the process. And that defiling word, that's a super strong word. Defiling means like to destroy. He says that's actually what's happening. Look at verse 8. He says, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Earlier in, in uh, Romans 14, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of, of what one eats or drinks, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's not about what you eat or not. So while Paul would agree with the more mature Christians that food is neutral in general, here, however, in context, and context is king. Context is king. More than a biblical principle, context is actually the matter. Is that, that's actually the issue at hand. Paul has in mind food that was sacrificed to idol, which may or may not be eaten. Now, there's flexibility there. Food may or may not be eaten based upon the conscience of another person. That's huge. And you can probably tell where Paul's punchline is going to go. But here it comes, nevertheless. Look at verse 9. He says, um, but take care that this right of yours, take care that this right of yours, this so-called right of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This, this is, in a sentence, what Paul's going to say all of chapter 9. He's going to use himself as an example. He's going to press this point home by using himself as an extended example of, of a person who's, he's going to say, look at me. He goes, you, you think it's okay to hold on to rights? I let go of all of my rights. I let go of all of my freedom for the sake of the gospel. But what he says here is that the Corinthians, they may or they may not have the right to eat the food, to eat the idol food. And that's a question he'll return to in chapter 10. But what they absolutely must not do is to exercise their right in such a way as to destroy the weaker brother or sister in the Lord. He says, do you have rights? Yes, you do. Do you have freedom? Yes, you do. But you cannot use your rights and freedoms in such a way that it will harm or destroy another brother and sister in Christ. Because this dinner, he's saying, this idle dinner, it has the capacity to be a stumbling block 
It has the capacity to be a trigger towards apostasy. And it could shipwreck their faith. He's saying, that, and you do not have, you have to lay aside your rights. You have to lay aside your liberty in the, in the name of love. And, and then in verse 10, he, he plays out a scenario in their mind. He says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged to do so? If his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to an idol. And so you, and so by your knowledge, this weak person, this uh, younger Christian, and so you by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother or sister for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin, you sin against Christ. Paul says, imagine, just imagine if one of the weak sees one of the strong lounging around in one of these pagan temples and you're eating the meat and you're having a good time, you're, at, you're eating the sacrificial piece of meat. What might they conclude? He says, you know what they're going to conclude? They're going to conclude that they can eat the, eat, they can eat the idol meat as well. They're going to conclude that. And for them, eating the idol meat is an act of worship. And so you're, by doing so, what you're actually doing is you're telling them worshiping idols is compatible with Christianity. That they can both follow Jesus and serve the pagan gods around them. He said, and that is completely off limits. Completely off limits. He says, he says so for the sake of a meal out... The knowledge of the strong is actually destroying the weaker believer's faith. And by doing so, the so-called mature is sinning against them. And in so doing, they're actually sinning against Christ. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, okay, well, this is great, but we don't sacrifice meat to idols. Okay, but what about drinking alcohol in the presence of another person? What about drinking alcohol in the, in the presence of certain individuals? It might not just call, cause them to fall off the bandwagon. It might trip them up to abandon Christianity altogether. And look, there's hundreds of different examples like that. It's not just alcohol. It's not just the movies you go watch. There are hundreds of different examples like that. Our, our decisions within a community of faith, it has the capacity to lead others away from Christ by tempting them to violate their own conscience. And faced with, the con faced with the consequences such as destroying their faith, wounding their conscience, causing them to sin, and us actually sinning against Christ, faced with consequences like that, our liberties and our rights, they fade into insignificance, does it not? fades in the insignificance. Because real freedom will say, I can limit my freedoms for the sake of another. That's what real freedom is. Which is what Paul says. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. So he says, you want to talk about freedom? I have the freedom to limit my freedom for the sake of another. Because love will restrict itself for the sake of another person. And the pericope ends right there, and we'll do the same. And I know some of you are thinking, praise the Lord. <laughs> it's a hard passage. It's a super hard passage. The whole passage, and really, 
uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10, what it does is it calls for introspection. It calls for self-examination. So let me close by asking questions for you to consider. And these are questions that you have to answer. I can't answer them for you. That's what self-examination is. I have to ask them of myself, and you have to ask them of yourself. Here's the first question that you have to ask yourself. Do I think any of this matters? Because everything starts there, right there. Do I think that any of this matters, and have I actually thought through these type of things? And if so, do I have a grid to think through um, when I'm considering whether to exercise my liberty or to limit my liberty? Do I actually have a grid to think through these decisions? To think through whether I should exercise my liberty or if I should liber limit my liberty on behalf of another person? In deciding whether to exercise or limit, uh, do you have a helpful grid to help you think through these situations? And if you don't, let me offer you one. Because it's one that I sometimes will use. Here's what it is. It's four, four things to consider. Here's the first one. Will it set a good example? Will it set a good example? Are we setting the right example for others, especially for weaker or younger brothers and sisters in the Lord? Because you may not know it, but somebody somewhere looks up to you and you have their respect. And so the question is, will, will my, by exercising this freedom, by exercising this right, Will it be a good example? Or do I need to limit my right and my freedom in this instance? So will it set a good example? Here's the second one. Will it help or hinder my evangelism? Will exercising my liberty or exercising my right in this moment or abstaining from it, will it help or hinder evangelism? Is my, is my witness going to be helped or is it going to be hindered? Will unbelievers be drawn to Christ or will they be turned away from him by what I'm doing? Now listen, that means you have to be able to read the room because there's context. That, remember I said context is king? Context is king. So in some instances, you'll want to be able to exercise your freedom because if you don't, you'll be seen as maybe a prude or someone who is too holy for thou and nobody will associate with you. In other situations, you want to be able to say, I'm not going to exercise my liberty in this moment because it's not going to set a good example and it's going to hinder my witness. None of this is a cookie-cutter model. What situation, will the situation that I'm dealing with, will it be able, as Colossians 4 or 5 says, will I be able to be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity? And again, sometimes towards outsiders, you'll have to exercise freedom in whatever, whatever the situation may be. And in other times, you'll need to limit your freedom and your rights so that you can act wise toward outsiders. So again, there's no cookie-cutter cookie model. You have to be able to read the room, think it through, and say, what would help me the best? What would give me the best opportunity to represent Christ in this situation? And the reason that bothers us sometimes is because we don't want to think. We don't want to actually have to consider how my actions might affect another person. But Paul says you have to. You absolutely have to. Here's the third one. Will it bring forth edification? Will it bring forth edification? Edification is a fancy Christian word, and I had to throw one in there just so you feel like you're getting your money's worth. Um, but here's what it means. It means the building up of another person. 
Like Paul talks about here, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So will me exercising my liberty or limiting my liberty, liberty, will it help build up another person? That's the question. Will it bring forth edification? And then lastly, will it exalt Christ? When you're making decisions, will it exalt Christ? Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether then you eat or drink, now note it, whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So will the Lord be lifted up, and will the Lord be glorified by my actions here? So when you're thinking through those situations, I find the grid helpful. I, four E's, think it through. Um, and ask yourself those questions. I think it'll help you make better decisions in the moment. Here's the second question to consider. As a general practice, now again, this is for you to consider. As a general practice, am I moved, am I moved in my heart more by my rights and freedoms or love? Am I moved in my heart? And you can tell as a general practice, what am I moved most by? What really captures my heart? Is it my rights and my freedoms, or is it my love for the body of Christ, my love for the gospel? Which one is it? And if I'm moved more by my rights and freedoms than about my love for others, what might that say about me? Well, it might say you're not as spiritually mature as you let on to be. It might say that. Because again, real spiritual maturity, the mark of real spiritual maturity is a willingness to limit your freedom for the sake of others. Well, what could possibly motivate somebody to do that? That's the third question. What could possibly motivate me to look not to my own interests and needs, but to look to the interests and needs of, of others? In a culture where everything, everything screams me. In a culture where everything screams about what I deserve, what my rights are, what my freedoms are, what I deserve, what could possibly motivate anyone to look not to their own needs, but to the needs and the interests of others. We'll turn to Philippians chapter 2. Turn over in your Bibles a couple pages. Past Galatians, past Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Look at what Paul says here. And many of you already know what Paul's about to say here. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being, full, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the mind of Christ. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, who though, in, uh, who though, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what Paul says? How is anybody, what could possibly motivate anybody to lay aside their rights, their freedoms, their privileges for the sake of another? Only, only when the gospel moves from knowledge, from mental assent, only when it moves from capturing your mind to capturing your heart will you be willing and able to put on the mind of Christ and look to the interests and needs of others because this is what Christ has done for you. Don't you see? This is exactly what Christ has done for you. Christ had all freedom. He had all liberties. And he says, I'm going to go to the cross in their place. I will bear. I will lay aside my freedom for them. This is exactly why the gospel, the Lord's saving love in Christ, it humbles you out. It fills you with love and it enables you to look not just to your own needs and interests, but to the needs and interests of others. You know what the gospel actually does to you? What it will actually produce in you? It will produce deep humility. Deep humility because you know you're not saved by your works. You're saved because of the Lord's love. It will produce in you lasting love, a love given to you that's eternal deep humility and lasting love, the very things that we all try to project to be, <laughs> deeply humble and incredibly lovely, these are actually given to you in Christ. And it's the only way that we're able to love one another well. Amen? Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Father, Father, we need to hear the gospel again and again and again. Because everything in our culture tells us it's always about us all of the time. And yet you tell us, you have shown us in Christ what true spirituality looks like. It looks not to meet its own needs. It is willing to lay aside freedom and rights for the sake of another. It is, um, it is able to relate true knowledge in such a way that others can grasp it and be built up by it. And so, Father, we pray for us uh, individually but collectively as a church that the true mark of spirituality, of mature Christian faith, the mind of Christ would be ours, that we would walk in your love, we would seek to build one another up, not tear one another down, that we would love your people within the body of Christ well and seek to love our neighbor as ourself, to love them to the best of our ability knowing that some situations will be harder to navigate than others, but doing it in such a way that we really seek to represent Christ there. So enable us in these ways, Father, by the, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.